Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The specifics of the framework are not as important as having one at all. Create some ruler. Like if you're a snail and you're trying to inch your way towards the head of lettuce and you're trying to measure whether or not you're making progress every day, it doesn't actually matter whether or not you're using an imperial tape measure with inches or the metric system and a yardstick. You can make up your own ruler as long as that ruler is consistently being used over and over again. This is why I say it's important for people to have a framework, not necessarily any one framework, and that they come back to it. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. There's a quote that illustrates the frustrating paradox we face in our career development. What got you here won't get you there. So what happens when you've hit a plateau in your career growth? How do you get unstuck? This question is what inspired our conversation with Quentin Clark, Managing Director at General Catalyst, where we discussed how to get your career and company unstuck at different scales and stages of your career. Quinton has had a wide-ranging career, having formerly served as CTO at Dropbox, as well as Chief Business Officer and CTO at SAP. Our conversation covers how to divide your time to create the right amount of room for growth, frameworks that you can use to benchmark your growth and identify where you might be stuck, and different approaches that you can take to get your company and the people you lead unstuck at scale. Enjoy our conversation with Quinton Clark. I was hoping we could sort of first begin by getting a little bit oriented to what we mean by getting unstuck. What do we mean by getting unstuck? And why is this topic particularly important to you? Yeah, I think one way to think about this is that every system that people are paying attention to, including ourselves, and then also including an organization or a business, the, the way that you get things to work and to scale and to be predictable is by training it to be predictable. We want predictable growth. We want predictable check-ins. We want predictable feature progress. We want predictable roadmaps. And the very nature of that is counter to the kinds of disruption that creates growth. And uh, the danger for people and the danger for businesses is paying too much attention, if you will, to that operating and creating that predictability and creating those outcomes because they tend to tamp down on leaning into disruptions and changes that are those opportunities for growth. And so you have to kind of start to create an intention, if you will, around balancing, hey, we want things to be smooth and predictable and deliver these results, et cetera. But at the same time, we need to create room and opportunity for the kind of disruption and challenge 
that will help create growth, that help create opportunity for growth. And I think that's an applicable thought both to individuals in terms of how they think about their careers and, and manage, uh, as well as organizations and as well as to businesses. Because I guess it's for comfortable. You already know something that feels good to stay in that state, both for individual and company. Yeah, that, I think that's exactly right. I, I mean, you used a good word. It's comfortable, but it's also necessary, right? Like you're running a business. You can't just drop everything that's going on and be like, hey, let's, let's go explore this other thing. Or you can't wake up one morning and say, I don't really care about my calendar. I'm going to go learn to play the ukulele today. There's a sense not just of the comfort of the routine and the predictability, but there's also a necessity to it. There's a greater system, if you will, that is relying on, on that predictability. So to not just have that intentionality, but to also be willing to create that room and face of those expectations. I mean, Jerry, you're exactly right. It, it takes a little bit of courage and it takes real intentionality to do it well in a way that's not chaotic and disruptive and doesn't disappoint, you know, the systems around you. Let's assume somebody has sort of identified, you know, I've over-optimized for predictability and there's sort of this need for my own personal growth and and development. How does somebody get unstuck? I think the first thing that people should think about is whether or not they've set an intention. I mean, human beings are amazing things. If we can measure things and create goals, like it's a, unbelievable what humanity has accomplished every time we've said we know how to measure something and we have a set of goals about how we want this to be and that we can measure progress against. There's no reason that our own development is any different than that. And when I say intention and I say goals measurables, I don't necessarily mean like, okay, I as an engineer want to you know, be involved in, you know, so many features over the course of years, you know, set of sprints or whatever, or I, as a PM, have a goal to, you know, speak with N different users every month or whatever. What I'm talking about is is more meta than that. It's taking catalog, if you will, taking stock of these are things that I'm good at. These are things that I'm interested in that I'm not yet good at and setting an intention around I'm going to make the time and I'm going to make the effort and I'm going to create the room for myself to lean into that. And what that leaning in is learning on your own, that leaning is building a network and learning from others, where that leaning in is doing work, you know, within a job that's in areas where you're not an expert. It all starts, I would say, with an intention. How do you divide time to spend on those few categories of things you just mentioned? That things you already know or you're not good at, but you're interested in the things that are potentially important and you need to acquire those skills. Yeah, and part of this gets into the, the relationship between you as an individual and the organization that you work within. If you're going to approach learning in, a, in an intention of, I want to do this inside my work. If you're an engineer and you're a really good data engineer, but you haven't done much in machine learning, create an intention of like growing into that, learning into that. To do that in the job place, you have to have an, an organization that is willing to give you that room to do that. And there's a lot to be said about that around psychological safety, you know, the room to fail, an organization that is correctly set up to allow people to work on things where they're not yet good at it. One of the frameworks that I used on and off in my career is this thought of 70-20-10. It's like 70% of the work you do, you should be good at. Like you're you're earning a salary, you're often earning equity, you're being paid. So there's something that the system's expecting you to produce for that salary. 
But 20% of your energy, a good organization should allow you to be working on things where you are not yet efficient. You're not yet necessarily competent. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to do this thing way more inefficiently, way less effectively than someone next to you where that activity may be in their 70%. Someone who's been there, done that, expert at it. And this gets to, you know, of course, engineering experience and ladder levels and, and all that stuff. But basically, great organizations give you the room, some part of your time, to be able to contribute into areas where you're still kind of like feeling your way through it and not yet an expert. And then, of course, there's 10%, which is, you know, it's just stuff that has to be done. Everyone should take on, we should just peanut butter all the kind of like work that no one really wants to do, but yet has to be done. As a manager, sometimes that was, I had to go in and I had to, I had to like approve expense reports and like approve budgets for capital purchases for data centers. Like, am I great at that? Probably not. Is it something I'm really like learning into and leaning into is because it's exciting growth area? Not so much. Does it need to be done? Yes, it needs to be done. And often it's a combination of just the seat you sit in. You have to be the one to do something. I had someone I worked with who was very senior at Microsoft who went into one of our releases, I don't know, one Monday, just got this in his head that he needed to go in and clean up like the error messages and all this stuff that the product would emit to its users. You know, we just gotten sloppy basically. And this is a very senior engineer being paid, you know, a lot of money and definitely work that's below his pay grade. The truth is that work is below everybody's pay grade, but he just took it upon himself because it's like we all need to do the dishes, basically. And and actually, that was a great lesson just in terms of leading by example. But the point being like 10%, if you're not doing some of the grunt work, you may not be holding your own. And I think there's so much to be said about, you know, as a leader modeling the way, even not being afraid to get in the trenches. But I'm guessing we'll sort of get into the balance of being mindful of the work that should be in the trenches versus other folks that could be or should be taking that on depending Mm -hmm. on the scale of leadership that you're at. The next question I was curious about, Quentin. So we talked about having intention, make sure that you have room and effort, and then defining the 70-20-10 rule. Where have you seen like most frequently that engineering leaders are typically getting stuck in their career paths? What are some of the common friction or sticking points for them? So I think regards to sticking points that as you progress in an engineering career, like what are the sort of the natural points in the river where maybe the current naturally slows down a little bit and you got to kind of row your way through it a little. I would say one axis is certainly every time you go through a, a scope of uh, or scale of organization change, there's a tremendous amount of learning that comes with that. And after people have gotten to some mastery of it, that is a natural point where people start to get stuck, right? Like, well, why am I not being considered for an engineering director? I've been an engineering manager now for X years. Well, the question to ask yourself really is, how have I shown that I'm still growing and learning and changing and developing as I've mastered this level of scale? Because it naturally, like I say, the the river widens and the velocity of the water naturally slows down as a result. And so the nature of the organization change is not going to carry you along and push you to grow, which means it's up to you. And so most of the time I find that people end up feeling like they're stuck. You have to kind of help them reflect on, have they set that intention? Because something about their situation has led them to that comfort, to go back to the word that Jerry used. And 
often I've used this framework with people that I call the six buckets, which is effectively thinking about growth in terms of these six different areas of competency. One of them is management. One of them is leadership. Those are obviously coupled, you know, related, but different. One of them is vision. One of them is strategy. Again, also related, but different. Vision's more the, we're going to climb the tallest peak on the planet. Strategy's more the, how do we measure the tallest peak in the planet? Like, there's no satellites and GPS yet. So, like, how's that going to work? You know, when the British explorers were romping around the planet looking for stuff, there was no Google Earth. And then, you know, strategy's the, what phase do we take? How do we get there? How many base camps, et cetera? And then the last two areas are, technical acuity and business acuity, where technical acuity is actually a a cross-industry thing. Like you can have deep technical acuity in paper manufacturing, paper mills. That's a deep technical area. And business acuity, of course, is a very horizontal thing. And very often to help people sort of recognize that they're stuck, you have people go through six buckets, kind of grade themselves, and then ask themselves what their grades probably were six months ago, a year ago, two years ago. And that exercise alone often kind of jogs people a little bit and says, oh, actually, I haven't really, this hasn't changed much in in a year. That's interesting. So how do I now create the right opportunities or lean into certain areas of growth? Because typically the system will also see that growth. If you're a line lead, you've been doing that for a couple of years and you kind of feel a little bit like you're in that, you know, the wide, the river's widened. And so it's carrying you along, not necessarily the same clip. And you're reflective about what do I need to do to start to rekindle some of that growth and learning. You can do things like get more involved, you know, upstream in the business or spend more time on leadership, that mentoring and development outside your team, across teams, or you can take some time to go dig into other technical areas and start to have your team contributing into more areas of the product. There's all these different ways you can do that, but it all starts with the observation of the river's not moving quite as fast around me. It's up to me to row. Now what? The river analogy, I think, is incredible. Is when you're talking about the six different buckets, I can almost see the sort of individual currents of the river. It's such a powerful visualization to understand is your current moving fast or not in these different parts of your own career development river. Yeah, and it really is the case that there are times in your career where the river's constricted, and so the water's moving faster, and so you're being buoyed by the challenge. We often refer to this as accelerated or accelerative experiences. Engineer number eight at Stripe, right? It's an incredibly accelerating experience. That river is moving very fast, and then the challenge really is, can you keep up? Can you absorb everything? But it's a very growth-intensive phase. But very often in our careers, we find ourselves in wider parts of the river. And so it becomes up to us to then grow, if you will, to move faster. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of the differences of the career levels. And you know, from somebody in an early management experience to a senior executive, how some of the, the ways to build this awareness and to get yourself unstuck change at the different sort of stages of your career as an engineering leader? I mean, certainly at different scales, things are you know very different. As a lead, the challenges you have to help people and your responsibility to that is very direct. It's very much you have one-on-one relationships with people and 
you have the opportunity to really help people understand where they are and move forward and give them that room, that 20%, that's up to you now, right? That's up to you as the as the leader to, to provide, as a manager to provide that room. It's up to you to help them develop a framework for them to challenge themselves and really encourage them to do that. It's up to you to provide feedback. And we can talk you know, kind of more about those things a little bit later. So to take you know one extreme to the other, for example, at you know, SAP managing 8,000 people or a Dropbox, 2,000 people. I can't create that drive for growth and change with one-on-ones. It doesn't scale. I mean, I don't know how many years it would take to have 8,000 one-on-ones, but it's probably a while. So that's not the answer. So the question then becomes, how do these things scale? How do you drive that sense of wanting to, to get unstuck, so to say, right? To, to break through or to break down the cadences and the rhythms, keeping everything oiled, you know, really well and working really well and to create the room and the drive for more innovation. And the answer to that is a lot about culture and it's a lot about leadership and some of it's about mechanics. So both those jobs, when I was at SAP, I created an organization, an effort called SAPIO, which was an internal incubator and an external seed fund that's still operating and deploying capital to this day and actually doing reasonably well. And at Dropbox, we create internal effort around incubations. And so that's what I mean by structural, because there's, there's nothing like putting budget against values. As a leader, it's one thing to get up in front of people and say, hey, I want people to be feeling like they have the opportunity, the room to explore new ideas and whatever. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say, and I've created a mechanism for it to help catch it and to encourage it and to ensure that we don't just crush it with the machine that every day needs to be fed to keep the business doing what it needs to be doing. And so that leadership is important, the structure is important, and also the culture is important. And certainly it, it is the case. I've been fortunate enough not to work anywhere that had a culture that was very much against innovation but I've seen them in my walkabouts of the earth and working with different companies and talking to people. I've definitely seen cultures that have basically an institutionalized pushback against change. And that is the other thing I think as you scale as a leader. And, you know, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, CTO jobs. I mean like engineering manager jobs. This question of culture really is important. And it's not even just company culture and company values that are written on posters inside conference rooms. Oh yeah, conference rooms. That's something I've forgotten about lately. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to conference rooms one day. But it's, so it's, not just a, it's not just like whether or not the company has a support for innovation and driving change and being curious, but how have you localized that to the team that you're overseeing? Because that's often where culture does not end up actually finding its way all the way out to the organization is it gets stuck, honestly, in leaders who are not necessarily taking the opportunity to fully prosecute how that culture affects their team and sort of leading from that standpoint. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community.
I want to go back to the earlier things you mentioned, the six buckets. What I feel magical about that is at the moment you lay them out, I start to benchmark myself against those metrics. And I start generating right away visibility of the awareness and also a drive to wanting to improve. <laughs> I guess a lot of time people don't have the metrics. Are there other metrics that can be relevant for getting people unstuck in terms of personal growth and career growth beyond those six buckets? Yeah, I think that everyone can create their own frameworks. The specifics of the framework are not as important as having one at all is the message. Create some ruler. Like if you're a snail and you're trying to inch your way towards you know, the head of lettuce and you're trying to measure whether or not you're making progress every day, it doesn't actually matter whether or not you're using an imperial tape measure with inches or the metric system and a yardstick. You can make up your own ruler. As, as long as that ruler is consistently being used over and over again. This is why I say it's important for people to have a framework, not necessarily any one framework, and that they come back to it and they create their own sort of sense of how they measure that. In terms of other frameworks that I've you know, seen people you know, use and engage with over time, you know, one of them has to do with an evolution of uh, the role that you're taking in a given problem. So... A problem exists, someone was able to describe the problem to me, and they're able to describe to me the remediation of that problem, and they're able to give me the instruction set to execute that remediation. And when you start your career as an engineer, that's usually what it's like. It's usually like, there's this thing we need done, here's how we want it done, and here's the things you need to do, and here's all the toolkit you're going to use to do it. Please just go fill out all the code. And then from my description, you can kind of see what those steps are in terms of maturing and evolving, you know, where ultimately you, you want to get to the place where you're identifying the problems. And then beyond that, you start to ask yourself the question, how often am I anticipating problems that have not yet materialized? And I think one of the good benchmarks to use as, a, as an engineer and as a manager, honestly, is when you get to some level of competency in a craft, you start to have the experience where you can start to anticipate the problems before they show up. I'm working with a team today that I won't go into the details of because the investment's not announced, but they gathered this group of engineers that have the kind of competency where they've built a system that will scale and it's going to scale for the next five years and the next million users. And I have zero anxiety about this whatsoever. And it's because they took people with experience and that measure of how often can you anticipate problems that might occur applying this architectural principle to this problem space or using these design primitives, whatever they are, whether we're talking about you know data structures or communication system, whatever it is, but these architectural primitives you know, where are their bottlenecks going to be? And in the needs we're going to have over time, will those or will those not become issues? And so this you know, incredible substrate can be laid down by these experienced people because they're able to anticipate those problems. And so it's one of the things that I, I think may is a hallmark of people that have done a really good job. I talk about building careers as a pyramid, but laying down that pyramid, as you do that and you get a little further off the ground, one of the characteristics is that you can anticipate problems. And the metaphor works really well because when you're, you know, when you are a little higher up off the ground, you can actually see things coming over the horizon, right? Those metaphors actually, you know, work well together.
the point you made about anticipation, I think, is so powerful. And that team sounds incredible. Excited to excited for the public <laughs> launch to hear what they're working on so we can take some notes. This is more of a personal question from your own journey, Quentin. When you're thinking about getting unstuck in your career, is there a story that comes to mind from your experience where you found yourself stuck and how did you get yourself unstuck? Because when I'm looking back at the story arc of your career, you sort of had several different iterations of who Quentin Clark is at, at different phases of what you've done as an engineering leader, as chief business officer, now as the managing director at General Catalyst. You've sort of had a forcing function to get yourself unstuck and to reinvent or reimagine your career a bunch of different moments. And so I'd love to hear a moment that stands out to you and what that change was like. I'll share a story. And the story is perhaps a little self-effacing, but I think it's an important one. There was a phase of my career, and I won't bore you with the details of the hierarchies and the job titles and, and all that stuff at Microsoft, but there was a phase in my career where I definitely felt stuck where I was in a job, the measures of career progress at that time at Microsoft, which isn't just like the salary and the promotions and all that stuff. It's also like where you're being involved, what kind of forms you're being pulled into and that kind of thing. Where it was just clear to me, I felt like I had slowed down and I didn't really understand you know, sort of what was going on. And sometime during that phase, the thing that unstuck me was I had someone else that I'd worked for in the past pull me over into their division to work on some project. They're just like, hey, I just need to come do this. Someone I trusted very deeply. People have heard me talk about career building. One of the lessons I often talk about is just follow great people, develop deep relationships, follow great people. Much good comes of that. Most of my career, you know, when I've been really in the groove, that's definitely been true. And in any event, so I, I did it, right? I went over to this other group. But on paper, it was a step back career-wise, again, in that sort of time and place in the Microsoft machinery. And what I realized some number of months later was that I was stuck. I was stuck of my own making, and I didn't really even know it. The problem with not making progress was I had one of these moments where the river had naturally slowed down because that scale of that job, it's bigger, it's, it's time dilated, the river widened, the current wasn't moving as fast. And I didn't recognize yet that it was incumbent upon me to be the one to row faster, that I was not recognizing the skills that I need to lean into to get to the next level and intentionally working on those. And it took a bit of a reset to kind of wake me up to that. But I believe very much a very valuable lesson in my career. And so, you know, I don't mind, you know, sharing that. And one of the takeaways, I think, from that also is to recognize that the things that got you to where you are, it's worse than they're not even necessarily the things that are going to get you to the next stage. Often they interfere with you getting to the next stage. I mean, just take the simplest, most obvious example. You move from an IC engineer to a lead, just being a great coder if that's all you do, if that's what you focus on, it'll actually prevent you from being a good manager. You have to be willing to not produce, you know, whatever it is, 50 hours of great coding a week, and instead give that up in favor of a set of activities that you, to, again, to use Jerry's term, because it's a good term, that you may be very uncomfortable with at that stage, and you're uncomfortable with them because you're probably not very good at them. But that will change. That will change. One of the rubrics that I've talked about over time is strength. And strength is really like just the ability to carry weight. Just think of it that way metaphorically. It is a function of talent 
which can be honed and developed and shaped and encouraged, but it's talent times the sum of skill and experience. So it's not enough just to have the inherent talent. You have to put the miles in. And it's not enough just to put the miles in. You have to be applying miles into areas where you may end up having talent at it, right? I will never be a great pianist. Like that is just not on the cards. You know, I took piano lessons as a kid. I don't really know what went wrong, but my brain is not wired for it. My brother-in-law, he can hear a, a tune once, sit at a piano and work it out within about a minute. His, just, his just brain's wired for it. It's just wired differently. He has an inherent talent for it. No matter how many miles I put in front of a piano, I will never be great at it. That's okay. I have other talents and I'll lean into those. That reminds me a lot of uh, some of the insights that I got from reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, about mm. looking at the different unique opportunities you've had in your life that you either have had more experience or earlier opportunities to take shots at than other people as a way to, for me, as a framework to think about in my own experiences, what are different things that I've done or experiences that I've had that may have given me an earlier opportunity. The example he shares, of course, is Bill Gates getting access to being able to, to code at UC Berkeley earlier than most other human beings on the planet as an, a unique opportunity. The comment you made about giving up what got you to where you are so that you could go to the next phase was really interesting because I think about for me, I have a horrible time giving up those things because I think, and this is something Jerry and I talk about all the time, is like as soon as I feel like I've got something, Jerry will ask me like, okay, so what's the next step? Like how are we going to transform this process to unlock new productivity here? And I'm like, I'm furious because I'm like, but I just figured this out. Like what do you mean I have to give this up? Do you have any thoughts about how to help people give up the things that got them there? Yeah, that's a tricky one because it's so against human nature. I mean, if you become competent at something, your emotional reward system, the dopamine hits, they're hardwired at that point. You know, being a really good engineer, that dopamine hit of like unlocking an architecture problem or that moment when you compile and the thing actually works correctly, right? Or having the confidence to do the check-in, you know, whatever it is, you're chemically rewarded. It's our lizard brains that are telling us not to give those things up. It's not just a matter of like rearranging your schedule that day, right? You will just naturally drift from the intention because your brain is yelling at you that it needs that dopamine. I think a few things. One, you need to seek and be in an environment with this, what I refer to as psychological safety, a place where you are going to be allowed to fail at the things that, that you're trying to work through and trying to learn into and all that stuff. You need to Again, this is back to a framework of it doesn't matter what your your measuring system is, have one, write it down. You know, one of the things that organizations do when they want an outcome is they write down goals. We literally write them down. Google made a big fuss about it and like named it OKRs, but they're not the first business ever to write down goals. Just, you know, as an FYI, you know, Google did not invent goals. They invented a lot of good stuff. Goals not one of them. But nonetheless, <laughs> the power of writing these things down, it's interesting that people are willing to treat so many things in their lives that way. People write down goals they have, and they'll say them out loud. I mean, writing down is actually often a very powerful and effective technique, but even just saying them out loud also you know, is an effective technique. Like, you know, I want to be married by a certain age. I have certain financial goals. People say these things out loud and then they strive towards them. They feel 
a little bit more held accountable to them by their friends and family because they've talked about these goals. And one of the things that makes great life partners is when, when you share those goals and they help you with that accountability system. And it's interesting that we're willing to do that in certain parts of our lives. And then other parts of our lives, we avoid it. Like we actively avoid it. And the thing I definitely encourage people to do is write these things down. It's okay if it's in some private folder somewhere. <laughs> like you can put it in a desk drawer, put it in your sock drawer. I, I don't really care so much where this thing is written down. I just think you should have it written down. The act of having to think it through enough to articulate it concisely enough in written form and have written it down is one of the steps that you can take. And I occasionally do this technique where, you know, whether it's a mail exchange that triggered a thought or it's something else I was thinking about, I'll write myself a note in email and then I'll, you know, control H that thing off into the future. And so six months, this piece of mail pops back up. And, you know, more often than not, I read this thing and I'm like, what is this thing about again, right? But, you know, I, I figure it out. And it's a tiny mechanism to hold myself accountable to if you kept focus on this and, you know, return back to this. So there's things that I'm learning to do as an investor, right? I've been in this job about a year and a half now, and there's still things that I'm learning to do. And so I have these emails that are showing back up in my inbox that are from three months ago or six months ago or a year ago that says, have you figured this out yet? And because if the answer is I haven't, then it probably more likely than not, the reason for that is, is I've not set the intention to do so. It's not for lack of opportunity. The venture industry has not magically shut down, you know, over the last year. So it's not for want of opportunity. It's for uh, lack of, you know, the discipline to focus on it. That's an incredible practice because I'm just thinking like the long-term priorities that, you know, you know you should be focusing on are really hard to keep track of because the time horizon is not necessarily a daily activity. It could be a six-month or a quarterly thing to revisit some of those outstanding questions. So I'm like, man, there's some emails I need to command H and revisit in a couple months. Yeah, and it's true for organizations as well. And, you know, one of the things that I believe is that our tools don't do a good enough job helping us with this both from the HR tooling side, which is one of the reasons I invest in Eightfold, and from the day-to-day -day kind of work management, team management side, which is one of the reasons I invest in this company called Range. You know, Range is a product that lets you have that intentionality. One of the engineering managers at Adobe, she basically has this thing she says around the check-ins, the daily check-ins. It's a ritual about being mindful, right? It's back to that intention and saying that intention, having written down, sharing that with other people, it just does. It goes a long way. And if you can do that in a way, again, this comment about psychological safety, if you can do that in a way where people feel the safety to share what's really going on, then you get a lot out of that, just like with your partner, right? One of the magics about the reason you are willing to share certain life goals with your partner is because you feel that emotional safety that if there's turbulence in achieving those things, they're not going to be like, well, you're fired, like, see you later, right? We all strive to, you know, have the kinds of partnerships in our personal lives where, you know, we're providing that safety and we're benefiting from that safety. And the workplace it should be no different. And also the importance of being nudged to make progress, that little reminder can play a very big role mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. It's a simple thing, right? It's a simple thing, but it's a contract you have with yourself. You wouldn't buy a house out of a contract, but people are willing to set their life intention without a simple written note to themselves. Interesting, right? 
I was hoping we could take a, a moment to transition the conversation to talk more about the company level because you had mentioned a couple times about different ways to introduce different structures and programs or how to get your culture unstuck with all these things. And we were talking about people and individuals. Organizations mm-hmm. are ultimately just collections of people. And that as an engineering leader progresses, their career becomes oftentimes more dependent on their ability to impact and expand the impact of larger groups of people. So when you're thinking about getting a company unstuck versus an individual, how is that different? And how does somebody have to change their approach or thinking in terms of helping people get unstuck with their growth and development? I think it's it's a great question. I think that we've talked a lot about intentionality and saying intent and all that stuff and having frameworks for kind of measuring and whatever. But inside an organizational situation, additional thing that you really need is situational awareness. You need to be able to understand where you are relative to the system around you and recognize that it is a system. There's this organizational sociologist, I guess, named Barry Oshry, who wrote this framework about the hierarchies that are inherent inside organizations, not even the ones that are like literally in the org chart, I'm also talking about the ones that are, you know, about how things work and the power inside organizations, et cetera, and how infrequently people are really leveraging their peers. And this is this concept around power of the middles and really leveraging their developing relationships across peers to carry out the will of the organization or the people in the organization. I think that's important because Again, it's a framework of intentionally taking the time to understand the nature of how things get done and, and you know what people's motivations are and why are things are happening a certain way so that you can figure out how to unlock and get unstuck in your own agenda. Just the existence of being in the middle inside a company, right? Whether you're an engineering or a PM lead or a design manager or a director, and yes, even vice presidents, right? At all levels, they live in an existence where there's the will of people above them, there's the capabilities and the will of the people that they're responsible for, and then there's the agendas of the people around them. And the total net sum of these things, Excel could not calculate. Excel would be like circular loop, logic problem, like does not compute and would throw up on you. Because the the reality is there's a lot of conflicting direction, if you will, from above you and below you and around you. And the, the way to get through this is to really understand what are the capabilities, what are the desires, what are the fears of all those constituents and, and, and work in the awareness of that. Actually, I use the same framework uh, on the career side where I talked about leadership and management, vision strategy, and then technical and business acuity. If you take that same framework as columns and then as rows, you write down like yourself, what are your competencies here and what are your objectives? And then you create a row for your boss and maybe your boss's boss. Same thing, like to your best judgment, What are their competencies and where they skilled at? Maybe what are their weaknesses? And everyone has them, so it's okay. What may their objectives be? What are they after? Do the same thing for your peers and do the same thing for the key people in your team. And then you start to look for patterns. Like like any other interesting engineering problem, you just kind of look for patterns. And you can find things where it's very clear that certain agendas are going to be able to move very quickly because there's like an alignment of competency and interest. And so like, 
hey, you have like five different things you're trying to get done. Find the one that's lined up to those things first, right? As a way to build some success and gain some trust in these kinds of things. There's also situations, one that I refer to as the two bozo rule, where if you have two people in a reporting relationship that are both poor in some area, weak in some area, that's dangerous because the current can get stuck underneath them and has a hard time leaping over to the next layer. That's an opportunity, especially if you find the peers that are around you that are strong in those areas to work together to build enough momentum to break through things. So, you know, an example of this may be if you're trying to change some cultural norm because it's interfering with the work of an organization, but your managers, this is not what they focus on. They're just like, whatever, some stuff written on the wall and a poster, like, why are you talking to me about this? And their boss's boss is also kind of of that mindset. The only way to break through that is by having a, a, a consortium, if you will, a coalition, federation of peers that do care about it and know it needs to change, that are willing to help get this agenda sort of really listened to. Because at that manager level, even if you're that manager that's like kind of not focused on it, doesn't really care about it, if you have five-year direct reports that show up that are like, hey, man, some things are going to change, you're kind of like, okay, I must listen to this. They're not letting me divide and conquer them. This is a force to be reckoned with. And so I think this is about, you know, human beings, we're really good at affecting things when we can measure them. And so it's just another framework to measure something and be reflective on that. And it can be very insightful when you kind of take stock of what's going on around you and figure out, okay, I can't do this brute force. There's got to be another way. Really quick clarifying question. So when you say objectives, is it their individual goal or is it like their function goal that you're trying to map to when you're filling out that framework? It's both. Really, it it can really apply to both. And, and very often, of course, as you get to be a more senior, you know, manager in an organization, your objectives and your organization's objectives tend to be incredibly aligned. There are definitely some things like in terms of learning and other things you want to have an influence or there you have a personal life there too as well. And it's kind of less those things I'm speaking to more so than it is the needs and the will and the objectives of the organization. But even on the personal front, there is this tremendous opportunity to look at that data, if you will, and say, okay, I really want to learn. I want to like lean into building my business acuity. That's not who my boss is. Maybe my boss is just a very deeply technical CTO that doesn't spend any time in the business. And most of my peers aren't, which means I have to go outside the organization to do this. That mentorship is going to come from, I need to go form a relationship with you know, the head of sales or with a, you know, biz ops leader or somebody like this, right? In order to kind of get involved in enough things and start to learn, learn that better. Thank you, Quinn. I know you have a hard stop at five. I just wanted to quickly reference and bring up your podcast, Equivalent to Magic. And so I just really quickly wanted to ask you, you know, what have you loved most about some of your conversations on Equivalent to Magic? I appreciate you asking about the podcast. Uh, Equivalent to Magic is a podcast that my partner here at General Catalyst, Steve Herod, and I embarked on, I guess now several months ago. In fact, we had our first conversation about it before we were sent to shelter in place. That tells you how long it was in the making. And as you know, it takes a lot more work uh, to do a podcast than it it appears on the surface. But it's been just this unbelievable opportunity to actually to help these leaders stop and kind of reflect and share a little bit about what they've learned 
because, you know, you take someone like Jay Parikh, who's, you know, running engineering up until recently at Facebook, his day-to-day life is get stuff done, get stuff done, get stuff done. It's not stop, reflect, and teach, right? And so one of the things that's been remarkable about the experience of doing that podcast has just been how open and grateful people are just for that, that opportunity to take that moment to give back in that way. That's just been very, very humbling. It's been a lot of fun to work on. That's great. Jerry and I are big fans of the show. Well, thank you. And also, you fall under that category of somebody who isn't taking the time to reflect and to teach. And so for that, Jerry and I are both incredibly grateful for your time and for sharing all of your lessons and insights with everyone here today. So happy to do it. Patrick, Jerry, great to see you guys. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with Quentin Clark. To get any system to work at scale, you need to make it predictable. But growth requires change and disruption. What got you to where you are, as Quentin says, is worse than it won't get you to where you want to go. It may actively interfere with getting you to the next stage. So to get unstuck means being deliberate and intentional with creating room for your growth. So how do you get unstuck? First, set an intention. Where are you interested in improving? Are you committed to creating room and investing the effort to improve in that area? Then define a specific goal and how you're going to measure progress. What's important here is that you create a framework, not necessarily any one framework, but a framework to give yourself a benchmark. For growth within your current job, try applying the 70-20-10 framework. Allocate 70% of your time to work you're good at, spend 20% of your energy on areas where you're not yet an expert, and 10% on the stuff that just has to get done. To identify where you might be stuck, examine your growth with these six different areas of competency. And those are management, leadership, vision, meaning what do you want to accomplish, and strategy, what's your plan to get there, as well as technical acuity and business acuity. Give yourself a grade in each area right now, and then ask, what was my grade six months ago, one year ago, two years ago? This exercise will help you spot trends in areas where your growth may have stalled over time. Another practice to help you get unstuck, build accountability mechanisms. Write your goals down, share them publicly with other people, write yourself an email to be sent back to you three, six, or 12 months in the future for you to revisit. As a leader, your job evolves over time where you then become responsible to help others get their growth unstuck at scale. Ensure your team has the room to spend 20% of their time on growth and help them develop their own frameworks and benchmarks to challenge themselves. One-on-ones have hard limitations for impact. To drive growth at an enterprise scale, put budget behind your values and focus on systems and mechanisms like incubators and innovation weeks to prioritize opportunities for growth across your organization. And to help your company get unstuck, try the framework to map your organization's competencies and objectives. Create a spreadsheet and on the row, list out all of the people, so your boss, your boss's boss, that PM that you're collaborating with, and then create a column with the questions of what are their motivations? What are their desires? What are their fears of each of those people? And then look for the patterns. What you might find is that you're able to see the roadblocks and get visibility into where there's natural alignment and then progress becomes easy. And that visibility will help you get unstuck. And if you enjoy our show, be sure to check out Quentin's podcast, Equivalent to Magic, where they interview people behind some of the most influential companies and tech platforms. And you can find the link to Equivalent to Magic in our show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a fellow engineering leader. 
Also, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a message with your thoughts, feedback, and any ideas you might have for the show. Or leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you're tuning in from. If you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. We also launched the ELC Peer Group Program, Peer groups provide a safe space to uncover solutions to your challenges from a thoughtfully curated group of your peers. It's not too late to join. ELC peer groups are ongoing and you can jump in at any time, but the sooner you join the program, the sooner you'll be able to connect with other leaders who can help you solve your real challenges. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or follow the link in the description. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.